Good morning, church. We're continuing on in the book of Daniel. Last week, we jumped ahead, and we were in the New Testament just for one Sunday, took a peek at what the Bible says about the church during the, some of the prophetic content of Daniel. Now, today, <clears throat> we are going to get back into Daniel chapter 8. I thought I would start by reading you. Somebody compiled a list of different predictions that people made about what was going to happen in the future. Because if I could kind of start off by that, that's the theme here for today. We're looking at words that Daniel said that he saw from God about the future. But predicting the future can be hard, right? I mean, let me just read this list. In AD 100, a Roman engineer named Julius Sextus concluded that inventions have long since reached their limit and I see no hope of further developments. In 1873, the surgeon to England's Queen Victoria declared that the abdomen, chest, and brain would never be touched by human hands. In 1949, a computer scientist named John von Neumann said, it would appear we have reached the limits of what it is possible to achieve with computer technology. The chairman of General Motors, Roger Smith, said in 1986 that by the year 2000, we would live in a paperless society. And in 1995, Leading technologist Bob Metcalf predicted that the internet would reach its peak that year and utterly collapse in 1996. I think they got it wrong, all of them. It can be wrong when we say, I think this is what's going to happen in the future. But <clears throat> now just imagine this. Imagine if, let's say, four years ago, I came up here and I'm talking from this podium and I said, folks, get ready. Because in the near future, this is, what's, this is what's going to happen. Every single one of you are going to shut yourself up in your houses and not go outside. You're not going to drive around. Planes are going to be left on the tarmacs. People will not be traveling. You'll be scared. And you'll see things on the TV that alarm you. There'll be riots in major cities all across the globe. And war will break out. In Europe, a superpower country will attack a smaller country, and you'll see a war break out of a nature that, at least in Europe, they thought would never happen again after World War II. You might go, okay, some of those sound kind of weird. Why would everybody in the world lock themselves up in the house, right? But then the pandemic came, and in some cities, they literally, that was the law. Lock yourself up, don't come outside. Planes didn't fly very much. Few passengers, travel stop. All of these things I'm talking about would see, might seem a little bit far-fetched. Maybe a war, but who? And then if, as time rolled on, the first thing I described began to happen you would go, whoa, I remember four year, years ago, Pastor Kevin was talking about that. That's weird. And then they might go, what was the other thing he said? And why would you do that? Because the first thing he said came true. And so the second thing, maybe that's going to come true. And then when that comes true, the third thing I said was war's going to break out in Europe. And then you might, especially the Europeans, they'd be going, whoa, wait a minute, the first two happened. Now I'm really alarmed. What country is it going to be? You see, 
At first, it's like, well, okay, who knows the future? But then, as things begin to happen, and it's true, what, is, what was said is true, it begins to validate or put faith into what else was said. You see, this is what we're seeing in Daniel. Now, remember, when we studied Daniel, I know some of you weren't here when we went through the first part of the book. First six chapters are, are they unfold in chronological order. What happened to Daniel? He was taken out of Israel. He's in exile, a captive, brought to the land of Babylon. They try to make a Babylonian. A lot of challenges in Daniel's life. Really great lessons for us as Christians in the first six chapters. You get to chapter 6, he's an old man, he's thrown into the lion's den. That's a great story. But chapter 7, now they're all flashbacks. Now he's taking us back and he's giving us dreams that God gave him while he lived as a young man to a middle-aged man to an older, older man. And what do those dreams mean? Who do they apply to? That's what we're studying in the second half of the book. And we're going to read one of those today. We're going to read about a prophecy that he's going to talk about. This is going to happen in the future. Okay, so let me start <clears throat> by reading the passage, but I titled the message, War and Peace. And I'll tell you why as we get towards the end, but let me start by reading you the first few verses as we get into this. Daniel chapter 8, Daniel's writing, and he says this, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at, at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. Now, for us today, we read that like, what, what does all that mean? He's seeing a place, and he's next to some water, right? So here's the first point. And the first point is God showing him that there's going to be a new capital of power. Okay, so back up to my first slide where we see the wall. And I've used this all throughout the series. This is Babylon. Babylon was the superpower at its time peak, and there's this great wall that they had built, a wall that was seemingly impenetrable. It was so large that there's a record of them being able to race chariots on top of it, a chariot race, two chariots racing around the city on top of the wall. That's how wide it was. It had a river that came in at one side, went under the wall, went through the city, so they had a river source inside the walled area. <clears throat> now, I want you to remember Maybe you weren't here. But in chapter 5, something strange happens to Daniel as he's living in this city. The Medes and the Persians, a great army of them had marched towards Babylon and encamped themselves outside of this wall and were going to lay siege to destroy them. And the Babylonians had come in the city, sealed it up. They had stored up provisions because you see big armies coming. They don't just suddenly arrive. They knew they were coming. In fact, they fought a battle far away. They lost, and now they're coming. They sealed themselves up, and they, they were daring them. We're going to outlast you. We got provisions. We got a water source. You know how, how much food it takes to feed an army of that size? You're going to run out of food before us. Come on. And they were so proud that the king threw a wild party. This is, this is in the book of Daniel. We studied this. And just imagine that. 
you are the, the, the king of the city, and there's an army encamped outside, and they're going to, who knows how long, could be 10 years. And you have so much pride in your preparations that you're wasteful. Normally, when you're under siege, you're rationing food. Everybody gets this little bit. We don't know how long the food's going to last. We can't go outside and get any more. Well, during this wild party, the Bible says a hand appeared and wrote something on the wall. And that scared them. It alarmed them. And they brought the smartest people in. They said, what does it say? They couldn't figure it out. And somebody said, I remember this old guy, Daniel, he, he could interpret things like this, so they would go grab him, and they bring him in. Now, I've set all this up because what do you think is going through his mind, Daniel? How, I guess when I get in there, I'll see what it is, and God will tell me, right? But what I want to say to you is Daniel knew. Daniel knew already, and he knew because of what we're going to study today. Now, let me, let me take you through this, okay? He knew there would be a new capital of power. Now, the city of Babylon, that city, that, that picture there, right? <clears throat> Babylon was the dominant city of the dominant empire. And if you, you can look this up, for almost two millennia, it was the most prolific plan, uh, city on the planet. And it, it started out uh, smaller and then grew in development over the years. If you go back and predate even the Babylonian kings, you have an Amorite king named Hammurabi. Have you ever heard of the Code of Hammurabi? Pretty famous in, in archaeology and literature. This was a code that was written. It's the world's earliest and most complete written legal record and codes. And they lived by that. They were the, one of the first to do that and gave that to society. It was, this city was a political and commercial center. It was a military power uh, many lavish buildings, artwork. In fact, in the city, they had their own artwork, but they had begun to preserve artwork from earlier dynasties and time periods. They had that in their city, the development of that. They, uh, um, you probably have heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, I'm just telling you about the city because what's going through Daniel's mind? This city is the city. And now he's in this dream. And in this dream, he says, I'm standing and I'm in Susa. Susa is this small, lesser known city in the suburbs. It's barely a dot on the map. And then he says, I'm standing at the waterway, this canal. I one reader described the Ulai Canal as unremarkable. It's an unremarkable waterway. But God's showing Daniel the new nerve center of the world. In other words, there's something that's going to grow out of Susa that will overtake Babylon. Babylon's a falling star. So now remember, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, this predates the wild party. This predates the army marching to lay siege. So he's getting a vision of the future. And God's saying, Babylon's going to fall, and the new superpower capital is going to be over here. And guess what else he gives him? He says, I raised my eyes, in verse 3, and I saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal. So I'm at the bank of the Ulai Canal, and there's this animal, a ram. Now, 
<clears throat> we already know in the Bible here that Daniel uses animals to describe kingdoms, right? And we're used to that. The eagle represents the U.S., right? The lion, England. The, the bear, Russia. Well, the ram. He sees the ram. And we don't have to guess who this is. This is what the cool thing is. If you flip uh, ahead in chapter 8, verse 20, it says, As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Mede and Persia. So he tells them, the ram, this ram's got two horns, and it's the Medes and the Persians, right? So he's, he's telling him, he's telling him where the new superpower capital is going to be, the nerve center of the next kingdom, and who it's going to be. It's going to be the Medes and the Persians. Now just think through that wild party again. Daniel's walking into the wild party, and he knows it's the Medes and the Persians encamped outside. You think he doesn't already know the outcome of this siege? He does. He does. Now, God gave him exactly what the words were that were written, which basically was, King, you've been measured and found wanting. You fall short, and your time is up. You're going to fall tonight. And that's what happened. While this wild party's going on, they thought they were invincible. But the Medes and the Persians, farther upstream to that river, they built a canal and diverted the water away to another direction. And back at the city wall, the water level dropped. Now, you can actually read about this in works of history. They record what happened. The water level dropped low enough, the records say, that the army was able to walk under the wall. They walked under the wall into the city while they're throwing their wild party and lay siege to it and sacked the city. And that night, that king died. And you see a shift of power. Babylon is no more. Now it's the Medes and the Persians, the ram. And, and part of what I'm building here is to see what God gave to Daniel. He knew ahead of time. Now, as we go through this, I want to talk to you about the kingdom of the ram, because that's what Daniel gets, gives us next. So he says, I raised my eyes, behold, standing on the banks of the canal was this ram. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the other one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue him from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So again, Daniel's getting this years ahead of when all this is going to happen. The Medes and the Persians are going to come, and they're going to, they're going to take over, and they're going to be great. And as you kind of look at the profile of this kingdom, right, you've got the kingdom of the ram. What does he say? Number one, it's a kingdom of two powers because there's two horns that represent that. Now, in one of the first uh, uh, earliest chapters in Daniel, we have the statue that represents all the kingdoms. And the Medes and the Persians were the arms and the chest, and each arm represented Medes and Persians. It took two kingdoms to become a superpower. They merged themselves and became strong enough to overtake everyone. And the ram, you see that symbolized by two horns. It had two horns. One's the Medes, one's the Persians. And they're both strong kingdoms. But one is stronger than the other because it says one, both, both are high but one is higher. And we see that the Persians grew to be more dominant. 
because the higher one came up last. And that's what history tells us. The Medes started out, the Persians joined them, they became a superpower, but over time, the Medes' dominance withered more and the Persians became the more dominant of the two. That's what happened in history, just like the Bible records it. Now, we look at this and we also see that this ram is described as charging in directions, northward and southward and westward. And this tells us the, the, the dominant range of the empire, that it went stretched out in these directions, north and south and west, and that they conquered everything. And when you read about the Medes and the Persians, one thing that, that was said about them was the world had not seen as large an empire as them up until that point, and, and the vastness of, of how it stretched out. They were a superpower, the superpower. And Daniel says that, that it couldn't be challenged. The ram could not be challenged. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. If the Medes and the Persians wanted to take you, they took you. And I, I think one of the, the greatest uh, descriptions of that is in this phrase, he did as he pleased and became great. I mean, what country today would we say that about? Is there a country that exists today that can do whatever they want, they can do whatever they please, and no one could be rescued from them? That's not how our world is set up right now. There's more than one superpower, and maybe that's a check and balance, but there was no check and balance with the Medes and the Persians. We, sometimes our check and balance is a whole bunch of countries like in Europe. We all gather together in NATO. We say, if you attack one of us, all of us are going to come together and fight you. And so they, they have a check and balance by joining together. Sometimes the check and balance is, you got nukes, if you're going to use them, we got nukes, and we're going to use ours. But today, that's how it is. But with the Medes and the Persians, they could do what they wanted. That's what Daniel describes them as. Now, just think about this, right? Because the next thing it says about Daniel in verse 5, it says, as I was considering, and I highlighted that because I thought, can you just imagine Daniel? I mean, he's, he's living in Babylon. God's giving him this dream about the ram that's going to come. It's going to destroy Babylon. It's going to break it, and it's going to grow vast, and it can do whatever it wants, and no one can stop it. And just think about that. I mean, think about if we, if, if, if we had some vision that said China is going to take over everything and it's going gonna, it's gonna to break apart our country. You, would, you, would, you were brought in a vision. You saw this. You saw it happening in the vision. You would sit there and you'd be pondering that. You would start to think about all the implications of that. Daniel lives in Babylon. He knows people. He has relationships. To say that your, your kingdom's going to crumble and another kingdom's going to come in and subjugate you means some of my friends are going to die. Some of my friends are going to become slaves in that kingdom. And he's thinking about this, but he barely has time to even consider it. Because look what happens. As I was considering, so he's thinking, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. Suddenly there's another kingdom. There's another animal, right? So all this about the kingdom of the ram, take that slide off. Suddenly we got the kingdom of the goat. Good timing. Kingdom of the goat. And now, again, we don't have to guess because you fast forward. Chapter 8, verse 21, and the goat is the king of Greece. Wow. 
He's giving us who it is. It's Greece. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting about Greece. If you read about it, it's the first colony of Greece was established. This is what is written about. Some of it might be just kind of lore, uh, but this is what's said, that an oracle sent a goat for a guide to build the city in some unknown place, that the goat came to a region of Greece, and that was the decision. That's where we're going to build. And in gratitude for the goat leading them in the right direction, the city was called Aegea. And do you know what Aegea means? It means goat. And so it became the goat city. And the goat is the animal of Greece. And the waters that come up onto the shore next to the goat city is called the Aegean Sea, the goat sea. This is Greece. Isn't this interesting? All of this happening. I don't know the truth about the goat finding the place, but that's the story they tell, right? And they are the goat city. Now, what happens here is it says a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. Now, I'm going to tell you that in the next few verses are five great prophecies. Five of the greatest. It's just amazing. The detail that God gave Daniel, and it came true. It came true. So let's look at these. Number one, the direction of the goat. First thing he says, the next kingdom coming is Greece. And he even says the direction they're coming from. He says, from the west, cross the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. We know that uh, that description, not touching the ground, is a way to describe the speed at which it grew. They moved so fast, it was like they weren't even on the ground. Just whoo. And do you know what? Greece conquered the, the, the known world in 12 years. Phenomenal. Phenomenal speed. 12 years. And mostly because of their king, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great is the king. And if you flip ahead... It says, the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Now, a study of Alexander the Great, I like history, super fascinating. His father was Philip of Macedonia. He was a king, and he, he was a good tactician, good military guy, conquered all of the, the area that, that he was in. And do you know what Philip of Macedonia said to his son, Alexander, before he was the great? He said, son, because they saw greatness in him. They said, son, this area here, I mean, you could inherit it, but this, this area is not even worthy of you. And Philip told him, you need to go conquer a kingdom worthy of who you are. Wow. How many sons get told that by their dads? You know, go conquer a team worthy of you in soccer, you know. But that's what they did. They, they believed in him, you know. Now, his mother, his mother, maybe she uh, built him up too much. The mother, when you read about this, uh, Alexander's mother taught him that he was the descendant of Hercules and Achilles. <laughs> so I don't know what that would be like. You know, you're the descendant of uh, the Hulk and Captain America. You know, I don't know. You know so, uh, but she built him up anyways. Um, and he was, the thing about it is this, because look what it says here. It says that 
The male goat came from the west, crossed from the whole earth, not touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Now, conspicuous means it stands out, you notice it. And, and what it is about Alexander is he stood out. He stood out in, in education, in his genius, in his tactics. He stood out. There's a story about, my favorite story about Alexander the Great is uh, one of the cities he came to, they had, it's almost like a tourist attraction, but they had this thing called the Gordian Knot. And it was a rope and it had been weaved together in such a way that it was like a giant knot that no one could ever untangle. It was like, come and see the Gordian Knot, test it out. All the wisest, smartest people came, mathematicians, whatever. They came, see if they could undo the knot. No one could undo it. Alexander the Great came to check out the Gordian Knot, studied it, took a look at it. How do you get this thing undone? Pulls his sword out, goes, whew, one slice, cuts it in two. People went, oh. <laughs> I didn't think about that. <laughs> and this was Alexander. He stood out. I mean, that story spreads. You know, it's like, did you hear how he did it? You know, he stood out. And so we have, here's the prophecies we have. Number one, direction and speed. Twelve years it took him to conquer the entire world. Also, the reputation of that king, that horn. The, 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 the goat and the one horn, and the horn is the first king. And it says that king stood out, conspicuous. The third prophecy is the demise of the ram. So it says the goat, right? He came to the ram with the two horns, Medes and the Persians, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. So God's giving Daniel what's going to happen. First, the ram, Medes and the Persians, going to take out Babylon. Next, while he's thinking about the implications, Here's the next one, the goat. And the goat, swift, faster than any other kingdom we'd ever seen, conquer the whole world, going to come to that ram, going to, in his wrath, rage against him and break him and trample him. So now he's like, whoa, Medes and Persians, then all of a sudden, whoa, I guess they're gone too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, trying to process and take all this in. And we know that that's what happened. You can read about it in history. Darius the third king of the, of the Medes and the Persians. And Alexander brought 35,000 soldiers. Only a 35,000 soldier army came in. There was a, one battle. Rather than negotiate with Darius, he moved around to this way. And there was this kind of military thing going on until finally they came together. One big epic battle where, where the Medes and the Persians, Darius had, had gathered together all his forces he could. And the records say that he had more than 200,000 soldiers gathered. Some say as high as 300,000. And they came against Alexander's 35,000 man army. Who's going to win that? Alexander did. And you could read about the battle. You could probably go on YouTube and type in great, uh, Alexander the Great battle against Darius. And, and people got all the graphics of what he did and how he beat them. Because he was a military tactician genius. And he, he fulfills exactly what Daniel is, is being given right here. 
And then the next prophecy, verse 8, says, then, so after the ram falls, verse 8, then the goat became exceedingly great. And that's what happened. Alexander spanned the world. I mean, we thought the Medes and the Persians had an empire. Alexander the Great uh, overshadowed that, the size of it. And it said that Alexander the Great went as far as India, and then his army was tired. And there's a lot of history there about what happened, but in the end, what happened is that they, they stopped their campaign. They didn't continue on. And, De and Alexander came back to the kingdoms that he had conquered. And you know what happened to him? He died. He suddenly died. And that's what Daniel says. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. <clears throat> now, they don't know exactly how he died. I've read different things. Some say he had a fever and he died. Some say he was poisoned, maybe by a servant. But he died in early age at 33. Conquered the world. One writer said, he died of depression because there were no more kingdoms for him to conquer. Probably not true, but there's something to be said about, about that. So you see this, right? At the max of his power, a sudden death, the horn is broken. And in the last of these five great prophecies, in verse 8 it says, and instead, it says, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So the great horn is broken, and then what replaces it is not another king, not another horn, but four horns. And by the way, those four horns, also conspicuous, also stand out. And this is, the, this is what's amazing, is you read history, and that's what happened. Alexander the Great died, and his kingdom was carved up and divided into four parts by his four top generals. And each general took one of the kingdoms and ruled over those. Wow. Wow. These are hundreds of years before it happened. Daniel's writing about it. Well, if I continue on, we're going to end up getting into next week's sermon. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to stop and just give you three insights for us today. Why do we study this? Why is it here? Why does God put this in the Bible? I mean, we've been saying all through the series that one of the things that God does with this prophetic content is you see Him always reassuring Daniel and, and, and the, the hearer or the listener. He's alarmed. Oh my goodness, that's what's going to happen? But then He comes back and says, but basically, King Jesus returns and in the end He wins and He gives the kingdom to His saints, and the saints rule forever and ever and ever. He says that multiple times. He always brings us back to the ending, and the ending is always Jesus wins. It's always that, okay? So that's one of the things we've kind of learned through this, but I want to give you three insights today, and one of them is this, that God writes history. You see, Alexander the Great is conquering, and he's doing it, but in a way, He's just fulfilling what God already wrote. God already wrote it. And I want to tell you a little piece of history that's super fascinating. It just blows me away. Because historians write about all this stuff. Some of the things I'm giving you, they come out of history books. They're old, works of antiquity. 
That would be the word you use, which means old writings. But there's one particular writer, Josephus. I talk about him a lot because he, he, he wrote about a lot of different things. And one of the things that Josephus did was he chronicled the movements of Alexander the Great. And so as Alexander the Great was moving and doing things, he was writing about where he went and things that he did. Now, one of the things that, that Josephus talked about was the decision that Alexander the Great made not to sack and burn Jerusalem. Yeah. And here's how the record goes. Alexander the Great is approaching the holy city. And they see a bunch of priests who have come out to greet them. And the priests are dressed in all their nice priestly clothes or white. And they see in the distance banners and the Jewish people are waving the banners. And it looks like a welcoming party. The conqueror has come. And they're welcoming him. Who knows what he's going to do, right? Because, because some places he's sacked it and burned it. And, but here he comes. And so Alexander the Great says, I'm going to go meet these priests alone. And the generals say, that's a bad idea. Could be a trap that could take out our best guy, our best tactician. I'm going to go alone. And so he gets on his horse and he rides ahead and he meets those priests. And they have this conversation. And the priest told Alexander, pursue your conquest of Persia because we know about you. Our God wrote about you and you win. Wow. Alexander the Great. He comes to the city and the priests tell him, you're going to win. We know about you and what's happening right now. You're going to come up against Persia and you're going to beat them. And <clears throat> the record says that he followed them back to Jerusalem. He was so impressed with that that he followed them back to Jerusalem and he actually worshiped with them and offered sacrifices with them and participated in that. And when he left, you know what he said? What said? Josephus wrote, that Alexander granted them all that they asked. Now, in other words, this is what Alexander did. He said, you can worship the way you want. I mean, there's a way in which, you know, Alexander's like, I kind of like your God because he seems to be on my side, right? He said, I'm going to win. So you can worship him. And one of the best parts about the story is that the priest actually brought to him scrolls of Daniel, copies of the scrolls of Daniel. It said, look, here you are. Daniel wrote about you. Now, just imagine that. Imagine reading about yourself in prophetic content that was written like 200 years before you lived. And it's saying, you're going to conquer. Greece is going to come. You're going to beat the Medes and the Persians. Wow. And so he gave to them freedom, religious freedom. There's a way I, want, I, I say here, God writes history because those priests were saying, look, I mean, I know in your mind it's like, I'm doing it. Actually, you're fulfilling what God wrote about you. <laughs> it's God. God is giving it to you. Okay? Now, number two, as we go through Daniel, you're going to see this pattern. God is bringing our attention back to Israel. That's why last week I jumped ahead and said, where's the church in all this? Now, as we keep moving through the book, there's going to be a greater focus on Israel and its future. And we start to see that through these different kingdoms. In fact, the Persians, after the Babylonians, they, they tried to amalgamate and change all the Hebrews that came in. The, during the Persian reign, you begin to see the, the kings 
letting them go back to their homeland and rebuild it. So you're starting to see God work through some of this to bring his people back to who they're supposed to be, which is what Daniel's first kind of concern is, is what about us? You're our God. We wear your name. And do you know what they say about you? You're a weak God because we're conquered. And so God's going to, through these different uh, kingdoms, in bit by bit, rebuild his people. In fact, do you remember at the very beginning, Daniel said, I'm in this vision, and he's where? What city was it? Anybody remember? Susa, right? Susa, right? Well, in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, Nehemiah says, I was in the citadel of Susa. And then over in Esther, chapter 1, Xerxes ruled from the citadel of Susa. And you, you, you get to start to see some of the stories of the Bible weave together. Do you know who Nehemiah was? Nehemiah was a civil engineer who went back and helped rebuild walls and rebuild the temple. And he's rebuilding Jerusalem for God and his people. That happened under the Persians. But then Alexander, what do we, what do we see with him? Alexander, first of all, he gave them the freedom to worship. You can worship your God how you want. But this is what else Alexander did. Because Alexander was, he had amassed a huge empire. There's a lot of different kingdoms, and he had a couple concerns. The first concern was there's all these kingdoms, and we speak all these different languages. We need to somehow get on the same page. So he decided, this is the phrase, to Hellenize the world. To Hellenize means to, to bring Greek culture to the rest of the world. That's why the Greeks have so much influence from their time period in so many different parts of the world. And one of the things that came out of that is the Greek language. It became the common language. Look, much like today, you would say that the, maybe the most common language is English. Seems like that's the language most people know and speak. Greek, that was Greek. Greek became the common language. And as a pastor, when we study the, the writings of, of, of the apostles, it's in that language. It's in Koine Greek, the very language that, that Alexander the Great brought to the whole world. The Bible was written in that language. And then it went forward to all the churches and the missions, and they could read it in that common language because of Alexander. And then you know what else he did? He said, I got all these kingdoms and and... I, I'm afraid about having access to them all, so we need to build roads. So he built a vast system of roads and like highways between all these kingdoms and cities. And they are the very roads that in the New Testament that many of the missionaries and Paul use in their journeys. And there's a way in which Alexander, God used him. Yes, he's a conquering king. He gave peace to the Jews. And then he creates within the world a language we didn't create the language, but he brought the language. He creates a uniformity of use, that's how I should say it, to the world of that language and in the roads that the gospel would be spoken in, written in, and the roads traveled on to share that gospel. That's pretty amazing. You're so quiet. <laughs> it's amazing. God writes history. It's all part of his plan. I'm going to give you the last one. There is a conqueror who brings peace through war. Now, I'm going to relate this because <clears throat> there's two kings we're going to look at in chapter 8. I've given you the first one it's, today. It's Alexander. And there's a way in which he's kind of a, a foreshadow of Christ because he's a conqueror. 
And what he did through making war, one of the end results was actually he brought peace to the Jewish people. And when we read what Jesus does, and I've already given it to you in some other lessons, he comes back at the end and there's a fight. The, 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 the little horn gathers all his forces together to try to stand against him. And the Bible says he shows up and it's not much of a fight because he speaks and he destroys them because he is the Lord of creation and creation obeys him. If he says waters part, the waters part. If he says enemies destroyed, they're destroyed. But he will be a conquering king and after that battle, he will establish a kingdom and there will be peace. And all through, all through history in the Bible, you know, where Israel is geographically, it's the nerve center for a lot of things. But in the end, it will be the nerve center for peace. He's a conquering king. Now, next week, we're going to learn about a different kind of king, one of those conspicuous horns in his relationship to Israel, and he will be a foreshadow of the of the Antichrist, of the little horn in the future. But that's the first thing we see. Now, I want to read to you this poem because it, this writer wrote about the comparison between Alexander the Great and Jesus. It says this, Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One lived and died for self, one died for you and me. The Greek died on a throne, the Jew died on a cross. One's life a triumph seemed, the other but a loss. One led vast armies forth, the other walked alone. One shed a whole world's blood, the other gave his own. One won the world in life and lost it all in death. The other lost his life to win the whole world's faith. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon and one on Calvary. One gained all for self and one himself he gave. One conquered every tongue, the other every grave. One made himself God, the other made himself less. The one lived but to blast, the other but to bless. When died the Greek forever fell his throne of swords. But Jesus died to live forever, Lord of lords. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. The Greek made all men slaves. The Jew made all men free. One built a throne on blood. The other built on love. The one was born of earth. The other from above. One won all this earth to lose all earth in heaven. The other gave up all that all to him be given. The Greek forever dies. The Jew forever lives. He loses all who gets and wins all things who gives. Thank you, Lord, for the life of Daniel, for what you gave him, that he shared it with us so that we can see that you are God involved in history. You wrote history. You know the end. And it's an encouragement to us when we can see that at the end, even though we look at the world and there's, there's sometimes chaos and troubling things, and we, we say, where is this world going? There's crazy stuff. We know that you never fall off your throne. 
Daniel saw the switching of one kingdom to the next, of power being raised up and lost, of kings sitting on thrones and falling. And the whole time, and that's the theme of Daniel, is that there's a God in heaven. You never fell off your throne in at all. In fact, you came to Daniel and you said, I know how this ends. And we just appreciate, Lord, the heart of Daniel. I pray we would have a heart like him. We care about the people, people caught up in all the chaos of, of the earth, that we can bring to him the true hope. And even in Alexander, we see a type of Christ, a conqueror, but yet there's so much about Alexander that's wrong. And yet Jesus will be a conqueror who about him everything is right. And I pray that we could just come to know him, to know his grace, his love for us, that we would put our hope in him. We lift this up in his name, amen. Let's stand and we'll sing together and worship King Jesus. <laughs>